Hello, it's Friday, March the 4th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show and it's coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're talking about exactly that. How do you talk to your children about the horrors they may be aware of in the war in Ukraine? Gas, the complications from that war which are going to lead to an even bigger increase in our gas bills. But first, Russia has taken control of a nuclear power plant in Ukraine, prompting international outrage after subjecting the plant to artillery fire. No radioactive leak, but of course, there could have been. So Ukraine's President Zelensky has accused Russia of nuclear terror after a nuclear plant was hit by shelling. It's Europe's largest nuclear power plant, and it was on fire last night after that shelling by the Russian troops. The authorities say the facility is now safe and radiation levels are normal. Ukraine's president says the Russian attack on the plant could have caused the destruction equal to six Chernobyls. Joining me now is Hamish de Bresson Gordon, former British Army chemical and nuclear weapons expert. Hamish, um, dear God, what was what were they thinking of subjecting this plant to artillery fire? Was it careless or planned and contrived in your view? Well, Whatever it was, it was incredibly reckless uh, because an accident could have triggered a reaction. And it's not so much um, shells hitting the reactor. Uh, I think the, the biggest concern is if the cooling system, which keeps the uh, fuel rods in a stable condition, if that was damaged and the, the fuel rods could then heat up and create an explosion, we would then be in the scenario that the president of Ukraine is talking about. This is a large reactor. We know that when Chernobyl um, caught fire and exploded, the radiation spread right across Europe and across the UK. And in fact, parts of North Wales were contaminated for many, many years and uh, sheep couldn't be sold in that area. So the potential for damage and uh, across Europe and also across Russia was very high. Presumably, the Russians wanted to take it so that they can control the power, because I, I believe this uh, fuel station alone provides about a third of all of Ukraine's electricity needs. So they were looking at that. There are another three nuclear power stations around Ukraine, which presumably the Russians are going to want to take. But this is folly. But just, just remember, on the rec reckless side, it is exactly four years ago today that uh, Putin ordered the chemical weapons attack from Salisbury, where I'm talking to you from now. Yeah, and that's, that's eerie in the sense that is it a horrible coincidence or is it Putin, the so-called great strategist, but he's brilliant at his PR, isn't he? Was it deliberate, do you think, the timing? I'm sure the timing wasn't deliberate, as in tying Salisbury attack and the, the attack on the power station together. Although yesterday, um, Lavrov, uh, the rather eccentric foreign secretary, uh, claimed that uh, the UK and the US were planning to use chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine, which is, is ridiculous. I mean, my overriding concern at the moment is Stamfast, you know, the nuclear side. And, and of course, we have Putin threatening nuclear attack on the West, if you like, to try and terrify all of us so that we make sure our governments don't get involved, quite apart from terrifying the local population with attacking the power stations. But I'm, I am equally, if not more, concerned that 
the Russians seem to be using the playbook that they used so successfully in Syria over the last six years. Well, I've seen them at close quarters. And when it comes to fighting in towns and cities, which is part of the Russian psyche, you know, a million Red Army soldiers died defending Stalingrad um, in the Second World War. And we could see similar sort of numbers. However, what the Russians and the Syrian regime did in Syria was they used chemical weapons. And the four-year siege of Aleppo in northwest Syria was ended in 13 days when the Syrian regime used chlorine barrel bombs uh, to end that siege because the, the, the chlorine gas, heavier than air, seeks underground. It either kills people underground or forces them above ground where they were captured or shot. The specter of something similar in Ukraine is, is just terrifying. But we must remember that we had a red line against chemical weapon use in Syria. And when Assad used chemicals back in August 2013, our parliament you know, in Westminster voted not to do anything. And that, no. that was political opportunism by the then uh, leader of the Labour Party, uh, Ed Miliband. And let's, let's hope we're a little bit more unified now so that we can you know, oppose Putin as a unified organization, because I think that's the one hope we've got. He didn't think that the West would come together in such a determined way. And I think he's now slightly underestimated that. We, we must find a way out for him and a peace that doesn't lead to hundreds of thousands of deaths in Ukraine. What was very moving as well, Hamish, you'll have seen the images of the human barrier, Ukrainian people occupying the road to the nuclear site on Wednesday to try to stop the Russian advance. Extraordinary heroism uh, because, um, A, they could have been taken out by the same artillery that attacked the plant. And if, if there had been an explosion, well, they'd have been first in line. Absolutely. I mean, this is a desperate battle, you know, on every single front. Uh, and these are civilians. And of course, it's civilians that are always caught up. You know, 800,000 civilians have died, you know, in Syria on Putin's watch. Um, it is, you know, it's the, the soldiers, the professional soldiers who fight, who have the body armor and helmets, who have the gas masks. It's the civilians who are the collateral damage. Sadly, again, looking at the Syrian playbook, Putin has no concern for collateral damage or civilian casualties. Um, and let's, let's hope the story of what's going on in Ukraine gets to the Russian people because they're not being fed it at the moment. And let's hope they have some scruples and morals to, um, to make sure that, uh, that Putin realises this is not the way to go about business. Well, let's hope you're right. We've got to rely on social media, I think, for that, Hamish, because you can't rely on the media, state media, because it's state-controlled, as you know. That's Hamish to Bretton Gordon, former British Army chemical and nuclear weapons expert, on the absolutely shocking development in Ukraine with Russia taking control of that power plant. So with Russia's seizure of the largest nuclear plant in Europe, are Vladimir Putin's forces now trying to completely cut off Ukraine from its vital links to the Black Sea? And if they are, how damaging is this going to prove to be for Ukraine and its Ukrainian people? Joining me now is Dr Deborah Sanders, who's a reader in Defence and Security Studies at King's College London, and she specialises in security issues in the Black Sea. Um, Dr Sanders, uh, apart from, we've, we've already talked in the podcast about how 
terrifying it is what happened with the nuclear plant. But what is the next step for Putin? Are they trying now to weaponize the Black Sea? Yes, without a doubt. I think what we're going to see increasingly in the Black Sea is, is an increased unsustained attack on Mariupol with a view to seizing the whole of the Sea of Azov, which has always been President Putin's, one of his key objectives. Um, he has done his utmost over the last couple of years to circumvent any Ukrainian access to commercial or, or, or military access into the Sea of Azov. It will really facilitate uh, Russian security in that it will consolidate its control over a land bridge which will link up to the Crimea. So I think that what we'll see is a big push on Mariupol um, over the next couple of days to really consolidate that, that um, land bridge. And I think what we'll also see is a push then towards the west, um, leading out perhaps with um, an amphibious assault on Odessa and um, joining up with uh, tanks and artillery and the, the might of the Russian military um, with a heavy push onto Odessa, which is, of course, um, Ukraine's largest seaport and um, a prize, a very beautiful and historically important prize for President Putin as well. So I think Odessa is, is very vulnerable. Um, and I think that um, that is extremely problematic for Ukraine because the Russian campaign seems to be having its greatest effect in the south. And I think the future uh, very much looks like Ukraine will, in many ways, um, become a state that is cut off from its maritime domain, will have no access um, to the sea, could become landlocked um, going forward over the next couple of weeks. And maybe even the long term. Does Ukraine have a sizable naval fleet to try to fight back? No, and I think this is one of the problems, is that um, over the last couple of years, particularly after um, the Russian annexation of Crimea and the building of the bridge, and of course you'll remember that the Ukrainian sailors were taken prisoner, held captive um, by the Russian Navy, um, Ukraine's worked very hard to try to rebuild its very small, and I do emphasise very small, um, navy. And actually, to be fair to the UK, the UK, we've had a lot of input in trying to rebuild the Ukrainian naval forces. So we have a maritime training programme with them, and we have um, a naval enhanced programme as well, where we're looking at supplying them with maritime, with ships in essence, with maritime platforms. But at the moment, what they've got is small attack craft. Um, they've got one frigate, and they've got a minesweeper, which isn't very, very effective. So they can engage in, in what the Iranians have traditionally used, used which are swarm tactics. But those are limited or of limited utility um, in a major combat operation. So Ukraine essentially has no effective way of denying complete Russian um, control of the maritime domain. The other way I would have thought is this, that we know that many shops are running out of food across Ukraine. Presumably, some supplies come in from the Black Sea. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think that would be a major um, supply route, a, a relatively benign one, if it be, could be done with um, non-NATO commercial platforms or you know, commercial ships, um, would be a great way of getting um, supplies into Ukraine. But as we've seen with the recent attack on uh, one of the commercial vessels just off 
Odessa. It's become a, a very dangerous route even for commercial transit. But I think for me, more, more importantly, or more seriously, my concern is that Ukraine is heavily reliant on its um, commercial ports in terms of its economy, and that any attempt to cut off its access to these ports will have a very pernicious long-term effect on its economic growth or its ability to regenerate its economy after mm-hmm. the war. And, of course, Putin doesn't care about that, does he? <laughs> no, not, not a huge amount. <laughs> I guess, Andrew, that kind of depends, doesn't it, on, on the future that he envisages um, for Ukraine. And I think the jury's out at the moment. But if one was to speculate, he definitely has in, has in mind that he will impose a puppet regime um, in Kiev and will have um, a, a significant degree of influence in shaping all aspects of Ukraine's policy going forward, even if Russian forces are completely withdrawn. That is predicated on Ukrainian forces not mounting a significant insurgency campaign. Um, and I'm not convinced that, that that won't happen. I think it's probably highly likely that there will be an insurgency. You can see, Dr. Sanders, that, that Ukraine cannot possibly hold out forever. But so if Russia do take control, then the what's open to the Ukrainians is, as you say, there is then a sustained insurgency, rebellion, call it underground, call it what you like, fight back against the Russian occupiers. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, I think the concern is that um, insurgencies, as we know from our experience, bitter experience um, in Afghanistan, Iraq, are, are bloody, nasty, brutal um, campaigns uh, that often destroy the economies of the states that are suffering from these insurgencies. They cause immense casualties as well to the civilian population. One only needs to think about um, Chechnya and the civilian casualties numbered about 40,000. Estimates suggest that over half a million Afghans died between 1978 and 1989. So insurgencies are a costly business and I suspect that Russia would use terror tactics to try and subdue the Ukrainian um, populace. So it would be brutal in its responses. Really disturbing. Um, But um, thank you for telling us, Dr. Deborah Sanders. She's a reader in Defence and Security Studies at King's College London. Want to get in touch? Tweet us at MailPlus or me at ToryBoyPierce. As Britain is still set to buy £2 billion of imported Russian gas this year, there are fears that the average UK energy price could be pushed even further to as much as £3,000 a year. Joining me now is Joe Malinowski, who's founder of the energyshop.com. Joe, um, we are not as dependent on Russian gas and oil, perhaps, as Germany. So why are we seeing our prices soaring so high? Yeah, no, that's right. We, um, According to the government website, we uh, uh, rely on less than 4% of our um, gas imports come from Russia. Um, Germany's uh, closer to uh, uh, north of 40 and closer to 50. Um, but um, gas prices are traded in uh, wholesale global markets. The price is set on uh, effectively on uh, the marginal buyer and seller. Uh, and therefore, even though we have... Uh, relatively much higher degree of security of the supplies that we have, the price we pay for them is never, nevertheless related uh, to what's going on in the, um, uh, in the global uh, context. And the global context in this particular case means the European context 
and um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in particular. Could we um, look at uh, alternatives then, Joe? Obviously, we can't do anything overnight on renewables. We're doing what we can there. And there is talk that we could be dusting off some oil fields up in the North Sea in the same way Germany are looking at some of the nuclear power stations they put out to grass. But could we invest perhaps in liquid gas, for instance, which we could buy from somewhere like Doha, comes over in a tanker, but probably far more expensive than what we're buying now. LNG is where um, European suppliers and the American administration is talking about getting increased supplies to make up any potential deficits from either uh, sanctions by Russia or to Russia um, uh, or uh, any disruption of the supply pipelines if, if they get knocked out. Um, the point being um, that, uh, well, firstly, in terms of building your own, uh, you need obviously a plentiful supply of gas. So, you know, that, that kind of rules us out effectively in terms of building our own capacities. But in terms of um, uh, supplying it, um, that, that those would be the sources and, and also the Far East. But everybody is now scrambling for those supplies. And they are also, and the price of those is also uh, openly traded in the market. And as we saw, part of the reason why we had the first phase of the oil crisis last year, which uh, wasn't to do with the actual invasion, is that as, uh, as demand for gas kicked in uh, following uh, uh, the easing of lockdowns, um, uh, everybody was scrambling for those LNG supplies and en route to various markets, they were being diverted by buyers in the Far East who were prepared to pay more. So the tankers were being turned around and going to port where the price is expensive. So yeah, yes, we can get alternative supplies, but the price we have to pay for them will be the price that other people will need to pay for them in in what is a very, very tight market. And that's politically very difficult for any government, particularly, uh, Joe, as we're entering probably the worst cost of living crisis for 30 years, inflation soaring, taxes going up in April, national insurance, corporation tax, food prices rising. So the idea then we're going to go off and buy a more expensive form of energy. But it does mean, though, that we're going to have to continue to allow Russian ships to deliver their supplies. Firstly, you're absolutely right. Apart from um, Canada, as far as we're aware, who's actually put um, uh, an embargo on Russian oil, although they are, they don't really buy a whole lot of oil, so it's, uh, it's, it's relatively insignificant in the context. As far as I'm aware, there isn't a specific embargo uh, at the current time. However, uh, a de facto or quasi-sanctioning is already happening on Russian crude particularly, where when you charter a tanker to take um, a product um, Russian crude to market, you A, need to find a line of credit to be able to guarantee the payment on the other side, uh, which involves um, an intermediary bank. You've also got to charter the tanker. And because of issues associated with not wanting to deal with Russia or being afraid to be caught up in potential sanctions, we are now finding that the banks aren't stepping up or withdrawing lines of credit. And a lot of the tanker companies just don't want to trade with Russia for the same reasons. So, you know, Russia, for example, um, you know, global oil demand is what, 104 million barrels a day, give or take. Russia produces just over 11 million. It accounts for 4.3 million of exports. We're hearing that around half of that is already disrupted and more could be. So even though technically there's no embargoes per se, quasi-embargoes are kicking in, which is why the oil price is increasing despite the fact the embargoes aren't there technically at the present moment in time. Fascinating, isn't it? Um, Joe, last time we talked, we talked about tariffs. Um, we know that um, the price cap comes off in April. Uh, basically, you said stay put last time we spoke. Has anything changed 
uh, now, talking to you today? Well, what has changed quite materially is now we are back in the uh, realm of uh, near record high wholesale gas prices as we speak. And based on where those gas prices are heading, um, even before the 54% increase in the price cap, which kicks in in less than a month, um, we're already looking at potentially at another increase of 50% in October that will take the average bills into the region of £3,000. Putting that into a uh, context that's probably uh, more meaningful to people when they see their monthly bills, a year ago today, the energy price cap last March was um, still at the uh, 1042 mark, £87 a month. In October, it could be at £250 a month. Um, you know, these, these are colossal increases. What can you do about it? Um, unfortunately, um, very little. Um, the, um, uh, there, is, there still is no competitive market, and the market that is there is not only not competitive with current prices, I mean, don't forget, current prices today are still at the price cap level, annualized at 1,277. They're going up to 1,971. The competitive market is trading at three and a half to 4,000 pounds now. Bad value today's price, bad value compared to October, bad value to the £3,000 we are possibly expecting come October. So um, whichever way you look at it, the, um, the, the, the quick and easy option of cutting your bills by cutting the price you pay for your energy is still off the table, unfortunately. Um, having said that, having said that, we are aware that some companies have been offering um, uh, uh, prices around the, current, the new price cap, around about £2,000 to some existing customers. So you might want to try and check with your energy company, see what the best deal they have for existing customers. We've heard them anecdotally, but the competitive market for new customers are switching A is not there, and where it is, it's, it's literally off the scales. So um, limited options, still nothing, still nothing consumers can do about it. At the, point, at the current point, other, other than cutting back. Cutting back is what we're all going to have to do on energy usage. I think I'm going to start doing it already. That's Joe Malinowski, founder of theenergyshop.com. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood joins me now with the latest. So all eyes on Chelsea, Matt. Who's going to buy it? And how big are their pockets? Well, certainly fairly big pockets, but perhaps not as big as they would have been had um, uh, Roman Abramovich not been uh, forced into the position that he finds himself of, uh, of putting the Chelsea Football Club up for sale. Um, it looks like there's the, the leaders in the clubhouse, as it were, to, to, uh, to buy the club are the American guy who owns the LA Dodgers, Todd Burley, and his mate Hans-Jörg Weiss, a Swiss guy who is uh, both obviously billionaires, as you'd need to be if you're going to dip into your pockets to buy Chelsea. Um, uh, Weiss has no background in sport whatsoever, um, but, uh, but Burley does, as I say, as the owner of, uh, of um, the LA Dodgers. So they're the two who seem to have come forward. Uh, and are leading the way. Now, they're not going to do it on their own. They, they want to be part of the consortium, so they're looking for backers as well, because obviously, as I say, it's going to cost quite a lot of money. But it's going to be in about the £2 billion region. Now, I think Abramovich originally was looking for more like £3 billion, uh, and now it's going to be more like £2 billion, which seems to be a more realistic prospect. So 
it could happen quickly. Richard Masters, the head of the Premier League yesterday, was saying that if, if they have to do the fit and proper person test, it can, they can get it done within uh, 10 days. So it, it's possible that if these guys come forward, show that they've got the cash, it could be done reasonably quickly. But as you know, these things can drag on. But uh, there's certainly a will to get it done. Do they know anything about Premier League football, either of them? I don't think they do, to be honest. Neither of them have had much experience. As I say, Vice has got no experience in sport whatsoever. Um, but they, they would know that there's money to be made in the Premier League. It is a cash cow in terms of the TV contracts. Uh, it's one of the most, uh, you know, if you do it well and you're successful, it is a way to make money. So if they are successful, whether they see this as a way of making money, unlike Abramovich, who, you, who basically ploughed money into Chelsea Football Club, and that's what made it so successful over his 20 years, whether these guys see it as a, as a, as a way to make money uh, remains to be seen. Uh, even if they, you know, that's if they get the uh, if they get the club at all. But no, they have no experience in Premier League football whatsoever. Okay, and plucky Boreham Wood, they're finally out of the cup, Matt. They were seen off by Premier League team Everton, but they covered themselves in glory, even in defeat. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, brilliant story. You know, the non-leaguers who obviously beat Bournemouth in the last round. A uh, great day out for them at Everton last night. The only problem with this FA Cup round is it's been shunted to the margins because of the all-conquering Premier League. So we've had this FA Cup been in midweek uh, this week. You know, it's been Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday night, and there's still one game to go. It's going to be on Monday night. So you used to have the weekends almost cleared out for the glory of the FA Cup. Um, and, you know, a lot of kids won't have got to see Boreham Wood last night. Game kicked off at 8 o'clock, 8.15. Didn't finish till 10 o'clock. Now, if you're a Boreham Wood fan, how on earth are you going to get back from Everton to Boreham Wood, you know, at that time? The trains will have, will have stopped. And if you're, a, you know, if you're 14 year old, you're out of school the next day. Um, so it is ridiculous that some of these kickoff times are where they are. But yes, Boreham Wood, a lot of credit for them for the way they played, and uh, and Everton, you know, struggled to see them off. Only two nil, and it took them till the uh, till the second half. So good effort by Boreham Wood. Good on them. <clears throat> and um, my favourite sport, cricket. We're doing doing not well again, Matt, in the West Indies. Funny that. Well, yeah. Now we haven't started yet in terms of the Test series. It starts on Tuesday, but already there's problems out there. So England are playing against a West Indian eleven, a select eleven. They're struggling to take wickets. They are already going down with injury. So Ollie Robinson, who's this guy that has been told to improve his fitness uh, because he's not been able to play enough back-to-back test matches, has already gone down with an injury. Mark Wood is ill, so that's two of our more senior bowlers in light of the fact that we've obviously left Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad uh, out of this squad, much to their displeasure. And now two of our more senior bowlers who are out there have gone down with injury and illness. So... Whether the phone's going to ring in the Anderson household or the Broadham household over the weekend. With that a would sort be of, interesting, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, with a sort of, we're sorry, would you come out? Because those guys are super fit. You know, very rarely went down with injury, very rarely gone down with injury over the last 15 years. Um, and really, you know, Ollie Robinson could learn a thing or two from them, but he can't if they're not there. So England got themselves in a bit of a pickle and they need to see if they can get out of it next week when the first test starts on Tuesday. Right, Matt, um, it looks like they're getting their excuses in already. <laughs> oh, dear. You're right. Great to talk to you. That's Matt Gatwood, who is the Daily Mail's deputy sports editor, of course. So it's on TV, it's on the radio, it's in newspapers, it's on people's mobile phones. Children cannot be shielded, can they, from war in Ukraine and the possibility even of nuclear conflict. Action for Children are highlighting the anxiety that coverage of the war in Ukraine may be causing 
our youngsters the charity is offering tips on their online advice service parent talk on how to answer your children's question with hopefully reassuring answers megan wright is a parent talk advisor for action children and joins me now megan this is a a, a new one for your organization because this is probably the most serious war we've had in this country since 1945 how do you prepare children how do you uh, insulate them from it or um spell it out as it is well i think it's a really good point and actually for a lot of children this is definitely the first kind of big um impact in terms of this kind of crisis i think in terms of kind of shielding or spelling out for them actually it's more about trying to find that healthy balance in the middle so they are going to see it like you said it's almost impossible to shield them entirely so it's best to talk to them about it but in an age-appropriate way so that they can understand at their level. And um, is it important to be truthful uh, or should you try and gild the lily a little bit? Again I think there's probably a little bit of balance there so I think overall parents should be truthful with their children because you always want your children to see you as a reassuring and trustworthy source of information but there is a way to use facts and kind of cherry pick the ones you share perhaps whether that's around kind of looking at how far away the conflict is on a map or focusing more on all of the countries that are working together to try and find some solutions finding the facts and the information that might be more reassuring for your child to balance out the things that are going to be more upsetting. Um, and presumably children uh, are talking about this in the classroom, perhaps even with their teachers. Definitely. And I think linking up with schools is a really lovely way of having that consistent messaging for children. Children really respond to consistency stability so if the messaging they're getting at home and at school is similar that again is going to be reassuring for them so talk to your child teachers ask them if there are resources they're using what sort of wording and language that they're using with the children so that that can then be echoed at home and there are what you would describe as child-friendly news sources what exactly are they so i would definitely say the cbbc news round is one of the best in terms of really child appropriate coverage of topics including this one so i think that would be a really lovely place to start with children obviously for slightly older children then it might be around parents talking to them about reliable news sources so looking more at news coverage rather than maybe using some of the social media information that again children are being bombarded with at the moment and what if um, your child doesn't ask anything at all about it? It's hard to think, Megan, that they wouldn't have noticed. Is it then important that the parent does raise it with the child? Because perhaps they're not talking about it because they're so anxious about it. Definitely. And I think parents are always the expert in their own children. So it's about trying to notice any changes in behaviour for your own child. So if they're acting slightly out of character, you might want to say to them, or I've noticed you've been a little bit quiet recently. Is there anything that's playing on your mind? And that kind of opens up those safe spaces for them to talk about their worries and hopefully in quite a child-led way so that if they do have those concerns, they feel able to raise them. And are you aware, Megan, whether or not this is causing great anxiety amongst children? Are you hearing that from your the parents you work with? It's definitely something that's playing on a lot of people's minds. 
I think after obviously the last couple of years we've had, there's been a lot for young people to cope with and adapt to. Yeah. And this is just another thing um, on top of that. So I think it's, it's wonderful because children have been very resilient over the last couple of years and have learned a lot of amazing coping skills um, in terms of dealing with some worries that they may have had during the pandemic. Hopefully they can use some of those amazing skills during this time as well. But again, it's about parents being aware of what tools and techniques might be helpful for their child and helping to kind of teach them those and input them kind of on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Megan, if you've, you've probably got a website, if mums and dads are a bit worried, they could probably go on there and have a look where you probably give even more tips and details. What is your website? What's the address? It's parent-talk.org.uk. Great stuff. Great to talk to you. Megan Wright, Parent Talk Advisor with Action for Children. Well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Don't forget at 5pm you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back with you on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Hold up. 